Welcome to the King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. And I'm glad to see everybody today. And if Carol reminded me, this is a repeat class. Uh, We had this same course last summer. And uh, so it was kind of fun for me to go back and look at it again and think, you know, what am I going to do here? So those of you that were here before, this is going to sound very much like what you've already heard, but it's okay. Um, You signed the sign-up sheet. Everybody got a handout. So I think we'll we'll start. I do want us to say our names the way we have been doing over the last few weeks to make sure that we are getting to know each other here in our class. My name is Debbie. Well, we'll start over here. David Dobler. Carol Dobler. Harriet Lounsbury. Tony Price. Erlene Price. Kyle Burns. Don Ward. Darby Strand. Dean Whitehead. Angie Whitehead. Linda Nielsen. Harry Bronson. Judy Bronson. And Larry, back here, he's mm-hmm. our um, Wizard of Oz, making things happen back in his little cabinet there. Um. You know, when I was young, the first Bible that I received was white, and it had a leather cover, and my name was on the front, and it had a zipper. Do you remember when that was fashionable to have a Bible with a zipper? We all had one in Sunday school, and it was about that time that we were called on to do a little reading out loud. So we got to this one word that was spelled... Come and sit down. There's a sign-up sheet and handout. This one word when we were in our little class, and it was spelled S-H-E-W. And so we, we got to that, and we said, shoe, the tables of shoe bread. And our teacher said, well, actually, that is pronounced show. If this is not a really big shoe. <laughs> It's S-H-E-W. Nobody gets that anymore. Nobody remembers Ed Sullivan. Yay! Um, But it's actually spelled that way, but it's pronounced show. Okay, immediately I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting book to read and study. So then a few weeks down the road, we were in the New Testament. It was my turn to read. And I was reading along about Jesus going to the synagogue. <laughs> well, you know, brought a few laughs. And that's when I learned that that was not that word at all. And uh, so there are many times, maybe that you all also can recall, uh, when the Bible has really tripped you up. And um, we're all here to learn. There, all, there is always more. And it's a fascinating journey. So I'm just delighted that you're here today and uh, that we can continue learning together about this book. Take a look at your handout, if you would. Um, I thought it was important to have some goals for our three-week class. I wonder if someone would read number one. This is what we're doing today. And then the why question that's underneath. Somebody just jump in there for us this morning. Carol, thank you. Goals of the class, to provide the student with helpful facts about the Bible's history. Why? We hope to see that God has protected and overseen his word and used individuals through history so that 
so that we might have the Bible in its present form. That's what we're going to be about today. And you see that on the slide, the Bible, oral tradition to word processing. Let's go ahead and read the, the next two so that you'll know what's coming. Would someone do the second goal, please? Yes, Harriet. To equip the student with some basic skills for navigating the Bible. Why? We hope to be less intimidated by the Bible's volume of words and better equipped to read it. Okay. And then the third week. Tony? To provide the student with an overview of some of the themes and theological terms. Why? We hope to have a clearer understanding of Bible's messages to our church and to us individually. Okay. And then for the three weeks, we have an overview verse from 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That last part we know. We want to be able to handle accurately God's word. But before that, the King James actually says, um, study to show yourself approved. So this is work we're talking about. It talks about a worker. Um, this is something that we are focused on doing these three weeks, something that we want to learn um, more about how the Bible is put together, where it came from, how we can use it best to increase our knowledge, but also to have a genuine relationship with the author of the Bible. And uh, so that's what we're about over these next three weeks. Any questions so far about our direction? And is everybody in the right class? You know, Tara's teaching the one next door, which is a continuation of the love theme. Um, so I just want to make sure that we're all where we need to be. That's great. So before we begin, let's pray. Father God, we just stand before you and are thankful for the word that you have given to us and all the many centuries through which it has passed, all the many hands that have touched it and written it down and translated it and published it and printed it. And we thank you this morning for the opportunity to think about these things. And we pray that um, we might hear your voice in it all, that we might come away with a greater appreciation for this wonderful word that you have given us. We pray this morning for our brother Al Friedrich, who is going through a lot in his life right now. We know that you are with him, and we thank you that he has a strong faith, which will serve him well now. Please be with us in this next hour. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we looked at our first slide, and make sure I'm... There we go. Um, here's some questions for us to think about as we get started. Where did the Bible actually begin? When was it written down? Who decided what to include? And who decided what to exclude? When was it translated into English? Now think about this one. At what point in history could you have owned your own copy of the Bible in a language that you could read and understand? So these are some of the things that we hope to talk about this morning. 
Did you know that the word Bible is not in the Bible? Where did it come from? Well, it came from the actual material that the Bible was first written on. Papyrus. It was those reeds that grew in the Nile River. They could be peeled. And these outer pieces of the papyrus reeds could be woven together, put through a process, actually made into a scroll. And the Greeks called that biblio. The original word papyrus for the Greeks was biblio. By the second century, it was just called the Bible. And biblio means little books. And that's what we have in our Bible. 66 little books all put together in one. But centuries before the Bible was ever written down, it was passed along how? Oral tradition. That's right. Century after century, the stories were told and retold and retold. Isn't that interesting? And so, eventually, scholars, known as scribes, wrote down this body of work and then copied the manuscripts over and over and over again. Do you know there is not one original scroll in existence? Everything we have is a copy. So that brings us to the logical question. Is what we are studying today the real thing? Is it authentic? Well, I think that is where we trust the Holy Spirit. Because surely it's the the Holy Spirit that has overseen this entire process through all the centuries of writing and copying. Now, in addition to that, we can thank these early scribes. You know, they had to follow very strict rules as copyists. Let me ask you something. Do any of you all remember writing a research paper in which you had to leave room at the bottom of each sheet for your footnotes that you hoped and prayed would correspond to the material that you had at the top of your sheet. Oh boy, did we burn the midnight owl oil trying to get that put together. And so I feel like that these, you know, we if we had only known then what the scribes had had to go through, maybe we would not have complained, or we would have bought a lot of stock and white out. I'm not impressed. <laughs> but anyway, that was an experience I'll never forget. <clears throat> now, here's what the scribes had to do. Every column had to be made of 30 letters, no more, no less. Um, the ink must be black, and it had to be made by a particular recipe. Nothing could be written from memory. That's my favorite one. (laughs) They they had to be sure that everything was copied exactly. They couldn't uh, do it from memory, no matter how many times they had done it. Now, this is interesting. The scribe himself must wash his whole body and sit in full Jewish dress every time before he ever sat down to copy. And then there are others. But finally... The scribe had to count. The Hebrew word for scribes is sophirim, and it means counters. Not writers, not copyists, but counters. Why? 
because when they got to the end of writing the manuscript, they had to go back and count every single letter that they had written to make sure that it corresponded with the, the one they had just copied. And if it didn't, then they had to go back, read the whole thing, figure out where the discrepancy was, and copy it over. So, you know, typing the research paper doesn't sound so bad after all. <laughs> but anyway. Um, How do you spell that word, Sophirum? I, I didn't make a slide for that, but it's S-O-P-H-E-R-I-M. Okay? For scribes. It's a plural. I am. Now, once these greatly revered Hebrew writings were copied many times over, the scholars began to consider which ones should actually be, be included in an authentic collection. And so, actually, it's, it's very hard to pin down, but the thinking is that it was started when the Jews returned home from their exile in Babylon. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But that would have been about the year 500 B.C. But it wasn't until 600 years later that a group of Jewish scholars actually met for the purpose of choosing authentic books of the Bible. Now, we're talking Old Testament only now. They didn't call it Old and New Testament because there was only one, and that was the, the Scriptures. The, what we now call the Old Testament. In the, the first century, it took about 30 years, from 70 to 100 A.D., a group of Jewish scholars met at the House of Jamnia. Let me show you. I do have a slide on that. The House of Jamnia, and that is when 39 books were chosen to be uh, the authentic books of the Old Testament. This is a location that's about seven, I'm sorry, about 13 miles south of modern-day Tel Aviv. Now, during this time, they also chose which books were to be rejected. And we call those the Apocrypha or the hidden books. Now, the Old Testament was written during a period of about a 1,000 years. And so these scholars met together to pick out which writings they, want, they thought were the authentic ones. Okay. Um, the word is um, canon. The word canon is what we use to talk about the, work, the books that are chosen. And this is, um, this is also a Greek word that means read, and in Latin it means measuring stick. So if you think about a measuring stick and that everything has to measure up, that is why our selection of books in the Bible is called the canon. They measured up. They met the criteria for being in the Bible. Now what about the New Testament? Well, that one... Um, the, the criteria is a little bit easier because, of course, it's newer. There were three things that were looked for, for the, in the New Testament. Um, the books had to have apostolic authority. That means they either had to be written by an apostle or they had to have some connection with an apostle. They had to align with the basic Christian teaching of the church. By this point in history, 
The church has been going on for some time. And so they have been using these Gospels. They've been using these letters of Paul and and other writers. And so um, they knew which ones aligned with the basic Christian doctrine that was being taught. And then finally, acceptance and continuous use by the church at large. These were the accepted books of that period. So in 397, at the Synod of Carthage in North Africa, it has been amazing to me in doing this study how many things happened in Africa. Nothing to keep in mind as we're going through this. But the Synod of Carthage is where the New Testament books were finalized, and they were added to the canon. So now we have the 39 books of the Old Testament. You multiply three times nine, you get 27. That's the 27 books of the New Testament. This is confirmation stuff. (laughs) Like we tell our kids how to remember things. And then um, for a total added together, it would be 66. And we'll talk about these 66 books next time. So now the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. New Testament written in Greek. Greek. And each one of them also had a little bit of Aramaic, which is a Syrian language that Jesus spoke sometimes. Sometimes uh, Paul used it. So it's sort of scattered in, uh, throughout the Bible here and there, but primarily Hebrew, Greek. What books of the Bible did Jesus speak about? What do you think he read? The books of Moses. The books of Moses. Yes. Books of Moses. Um, sometimes, what else? Isaiah. Isaiah. We know that he read Isaiah or knew about it. Psalms. Psalms. You all have picked the three because um, the scholars think that he possibly had in his home growing up in Nazareth both um, Deuteronomy and the Psalms. We remember the story about um, when he was 12 years old and he was in the temple in Jerusalem while his family had gone on back home and he, his parents were in a panic because he was lost, but he was very happily answering the questions of these um, scholars and they were asking him things that he could answer. And then another occasion is when he was, uh, was asked to read or stood up to read the scripture in the synagogue there in Nazareth. He unrolled the book of Isaiah and read from that. We also know that Jesus did not depend on scrolls for his scripture. We see him throughout the New Testament quoting scripture from everyone to from the devil to the disciples to uh, the crowds at large. Uh, to the religious scholars, he was well-versed in the scripture. I I guess he knew that it was all about him. We know when he gets, uh, when he is resurrected, and we have this wonderful scene of Jesus walking on the road um, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he's speaking with these disciples, and they don't know who he is. And he begins to tell them all about the scriptures and um, reveal the scripture to them. 
that is a Bible study I would have loved to have been in on. But at any rate, we know that um, this, this scripture was in Jesus' mind and heart. So it's safe to say that Jesus read, remembered, interpreted these early writings that we now call the Old Testament. Now, what language were they in when Jesus was reading them and studying them and working through them the way we, we do? Well, our, initially we, we think, well, it must have been Hebrew, right? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, this brings us to the point in history where we're going to talk about the very first time that the Bible was ever translated. Long before the original um, or the official canon, we were talking about a minute ago, long before that official canon was put together, these Old Testament writings had already been translated. Why? In 200 B.C., Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. The Jews were scattered all around countries around the Mediterranean Sea. And they were all speaking Greek. And so it became apparent that it was necessary to have these writings, these beloved writings, translated into Greek, a language that they could read and understand. So here we are in Africa again. Seventy Jews were invited to come to Alexandria, and they were invited by Ptolemy II. He was a Greek king. Now, this is another interesting study that we should all do sometime, is all the ways that God used kings, people in power, to get his work done. And it makes us wonder, is he still doing it, you know? Of course he is. But this is Ptolemy II in 200 B.C., and he's the one that authorized the Greek translation of the Septuagint. We call it the Septuagint, and here's why. Seventy Jewish scholars were invited. Now, they had to be scholars who knew what language? Hebrew. Because they were going to be given the assignment to translate it into Greek. So they were all invited to come to Alexandria. We're talking about the third century now. And now the legend says that Ptolemy gave each one of these 70 scholars his own cell, his own chamber. And then the directions were, translate your book of Moshe, your Torah, your books of Moses, individually on your own. And would you believe they all translated them exactly the same? And if you don't believe that, this information is recorded five times in ancient texts. Now, isn't that something? So they they were were well-versed in Hebrew. They knew Greek. They all translated those books the same. And so eventually, um, this... These Old Testament writings all were translated into Greek, and um, and so it became known as the Septuagint because sept is the Greek word for seven, the 70 people who translated it.
So um, my earlier question was, what was Jesus studying? What was he reading? Well, this is the Bible that Jesus knew best. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament writings. Well, eventually, it was time for a meticulous translation of the Bible into yet another language, Latin. Why? Think of history. Yep. Rome Rome conquered the known world. Their language is Latin. So now it was time for a Latin translation, and we're moving ahead several centuries. A Roman Catholic priest by the name of Jerome, here's his picture, took upon himself the task of translating the Bible into Latin. It took him 30 years, and he, um, he remained pretty much in a monastery in Bethlehem to get the job done. And during the last years of his life, he went blind. That was definitely a disadvantage. But he called for help, and his helpers came. And now think about this. Jerome is blind, and so um, the helpers have to read to him the scripture. In his brain, he translates it from Hebrew or Greek into Latin, and then he speaks the Latin, and they write it down. I mean... This is quite a process, isn't it? I mean, do you ever stop to think about all this when you open your Bible and just read it? It's just incredible to me the things, that the process that we um, can learn about and appreciate it. But anyway, um, his, his translation came to be called Latin Vulgate. That is a word that just means the common language, like street Latin. Everybody could read it and understand it. So any questions so far? Are we doing okay? I see lots of yawning in here, so I'm t- <laughs> I know this is history, but I'm trying to make it interesting. Yes, Jim? I'm surprised when the canon was finalized in 397 that it was the Synod of Carthage. I would have thought it was the Missouri Synod. I know. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> well, we're going to find that our word synod is an old word that's been around for a long time, apparently. Good point. Yes. I was thinking about... Um, the civilizations of the early world were put into Babel. God said, let's go down and confuse them because they want to be like us. God yes. was talking to the angels, I think. Apparently. And, and now this is such evidence of God taking precise care of every word through the ages. Yes. It's just kind of... Uh-huh. He's in charge. Amazing. Yeah. That is so interesting. I'm glad you thought about the Tower of Babel. Yeah, when all these languages were confused. And by the way, um, we're going to get to a point in our study. We're going to just sort of talk about our English Bible or German. But these translations were happening in a lot of different places, just in the interest of time and my lack of information and knowledge. But um, we're just going to trace it through and see a little bit of how how the Bible came to us. But, yeah, good point. When you, now, think, when you uh, think about 70 people getting together and agreeing on something, that's a little <laughs> <laughs> I think the secret was putting them in individual rooms, right? 
Although we're going to find out later that God can work through committees too, so hold on. But um, one of the interesting things about Jerome's uh, translation, and um, to your point, Judy, for a thousand years, this was the Bible. That was the one that everybody knew and used for a thousand years at least. Maybe it, Actually, even today, the Roman Catholic, Catholic scholars still go back to it. But he translated, there's a passage in Exodus. Did I put that up here? Oh, I know, it's coming. Um, a passage in Exodus 34 that talks about Moses coming down the mountain with rays of light around his head. Well, the Hebrew word for rays of light is very similar to the Hebrew word for horns. And so when Jerome translated the verse, there are two or three verses, he, every time he said, Moses came down the mountain with horns. And do you know that is the way it continued for all this time? Have any of you seen this statue of Moses in Rome except uh, the... Um, St. Peter in Chains is the name of the church. And it's a huge statue. Moses is seated, and you can see that he has the Ten Commandments in his right arm. And sure enough, he is depicted with horns. So Michelangelo himself uh, knew Jerome's scripture here, and he designed Moses with horns. But it's probably one of um, one of the great statues. Uh, if you ever get a chance to see that, be sure you do. So anyway, um, <clears throat> this was in the statue was in the year 1513. So we've moved through through a lot of time here. Um, I also want to mention about Jerome's translation. That was the first one, the first Bible that was printed on Johann Gutenberg's printing press. But that's not going to come until 100 years or so after this. So keep that in mind. Long before the printing press was invented, and way back when Scripture was still copied by hand, there was this subcurrent of questioning about the Bible. And now here's what some of the questions were. Could only the well-educated people read the Bible? Was it available only to people who knew Latin or Hebrew and Greek? Um, was the Bible even intended for people who couldn't read? Think about that. Was the Bible intended for everybody, the masses? Well, what on earth would happen if ordinary folk were to begin reading and interpreting the Holy Writ? That could be a recipe for disaster. That was certainly the opinion of the church at that time. So there were many, though, who began secretly to put the scripture into the languages of the common people. We're going to limit our story today to three. Yes, Tony. I was going to say, we haven't completely succeeded at that yet. <laughs> if you go to New Guinea, there's... Still trying to yes. get the hundred or so different languages translated. Isn't that something? And all around the world, in fact, that, that certainly is true. 
Um, let me ask you a question just out of the blue here. Are you all familiar with an organization called Wycliffe Translators? Yes. Uh, this is the organization that has, since the 1950s, been dedicated to getting the Bible into many, many, many languages of people around the world so that they could read it in their own language. We have connections with Wycliffe here at King of Glory. Um, there is a couple by the name of David and Lynn Frank, and Lynn is the sister of Jan Brody and Carol um, Drake. Maybe you know both of these ladies are members of our church here, they and their husband. And this is the third sister, Lynn. Now, Lynn and Carol and Jan are all three the daughters of Pastor and Mrs. Ernst Meyer, who have gone on to glory now, but they were members of our church here. And these three girls um, are there, you know, two of them here at our church. One of them is the Wycliffe translator, Lynn Frank. Now, she and her husband translated the New Testament into French Creole in 1999. And then in 2005, they translated the New Testament into the Gullah language in, for the Gullah people of South Carolina. Mm. They are now retired. They're not retired. I'm sorry. They are consulting and editing at the Discovery Center in Orlando, Florida. I think that is the headquarters of Wycliffe in Orlando. Does yes. anybody know Linda? Uh, also, Ruth and David Snyder, Viola and Paul's. Yes, I have them too. David and Ruth Snyder, and I believe they spent their career in Papua New Guinea translating uh, the, the Bible. Typically, the Wycliffe translators begin with the New Testament. If they get to it, maybe the Old Testament too, but typically it's um, to start with the New. Yes, Carol. Um, I have never run across another church that did this, but... Uh -huh. I belong to First Lutheran Church in Boston. Uh -huh. The ladies there printed different uh, Bibles in different languages. That was the job they did. And they went every week and they printed them off and they put them together. And really? Mm -hmm. I've never known that. Were they working under an organization like Wycliffe? Or? Um, you know, at that time, I didn't hear that mm -hmm. thing at all. But how, what a but wonderful... It must have been a connection with Wycliffe. Yeah. How about that? How interesting. What a wonderful ministry. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, Wycliffe, where does that come from? Well, here's our guy. That's a strange hat on, doesn't he? he but, has uh, orange, too. He's what? He has horns, too. He has horns, too, Judy said. <laughs> it was a thing. It was fashionable. But we're talking now about the mid-1300s. And Wycliffe, as you see here, was an Oxford scholar. And he formed a team of people who could help him do this. He just felt very strongly that there was a lot of corruption in the church that he was seeing and that people needed to have the Bible in their own language, in their own hands. And so he recruited these people to translate the Bible. And as soon as there was a section translated, there were people waiting to copy it. And then it was sent out through England, throughout the, the land, really. What happened to the people who could not read? Because there were many in the 1300s who had no way to read it. 
This is when he sent out a delegation of poor priests. The poor priests had to wear a coarse robe, uh, a rope belt, sandals, and sort of a flat, broad-brimmed hat, sort of like Chaucer's friar. And they would go out through the land with their New Testament translated into English and read it. People would gather around and listen. And they would listen over and over and over again until they memorized it. It went straight from the, the vocal to memorizing. <clears throat> there was no reading stage in between. Can you imagine doing that? And so that was how they got it into their hearts. Shame on us. We just cringe when anybody says memorize. But that's the way they, the way they got it. So this is John Wycliffe, and he's the one that the Wycliffe organization, that Wycliffe ministry, is named for. We can certainly understand why. Now, what happened to John Wycliffe as a result of his translating the Bible? Well, for about 10 years, he was hauled in and out of court. He became ill, and on his deathbed, the religious leaders came and explained to him that they were going to pray for him to go straight to hell unless he would recant. Well, it made him so mad he got well and lived for for six more years. Now, get this, they weren't through with him yet. He died, but 24 years after he died, they dug up his, uh, no, 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 24 years after, they collected all his writings and burned them. And then 44 years after he died, excuse me, that's when they dug up his bones and burned his bones and whatever remains there were after that, they threw into the river. All this for the crime of translating the Bible into English. So that was really the beginning of it. And now, of course, we know the one we're most familiar with, and now we're talking about uh, 200 years later in Germany. But thank goodness Martin Luther recognized the problems that were in the church. And once he began to make waves, of course, he was excommunicated. He was um, captured um, for his own safety and taken to Wartburg Castle. But that gave him a chance to disguise himself as Knight George. This doesn't look like the picture of Martin Luther we usually see, but that's because he was disguising himself as Knight George. And there he translated the New Testament into German. And not only did he translate it, but he created a brand new German for people to speak. Before this, there were just all kinds of dialects Um, or there was a high German that nobody could attain to. And so he was able to come up with a language that the common people could speak, and as well as translating first the New Testament, then the Old. Now, if you have not been to Wartburg Castle, I highly recommend it. It's quite a climb, but it's well worth it. And you get to see the room that he translated the Bible in. And this is his desk and his chair. Um, That, I was just so excited to be able to see where this took place. I bet some of you have been uh, to the Wartburg Castle. And you see how the wall here looks very modeled? This is because the legend says that Luther got angry with the devil 
for distracting him from his translating work, and he threw the inkwell at him. And that's where the ink stains were. So for many years, the tourists were allowed to come in and take pieces of the wall home for a souvenir. <laughs> they don't let you do that anymore. But um, that, was, that was the place. He completed the work in 1532. Okay. Um, how, we're doing great. All right. Um, <laughs> then we come, yes. question. What, what were the, the people that uh, did all this to Wycliffe? Mm-hmm. Wycliffe, what, what was their objection that it mm-hmm. translated into English? Because they thought it had to stay Latin. Old? Had to stay Latin. Latin was the language of the church. Uh, and if it got into the people's hands, mm-hmm. then... Well, the people would understand too much. That's right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That was the whole thinking, very much like when Ger- the uh, Martin Luther came along with the same, the same problem with the church. So the church was pretty much in control for many centuries. Oh, that's interesting. It is, isn't it? And so it's enforced ignorance, basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, also, also, that was a time of the uh, Pope was selling things to get you out of And if they found out, hey, that doesn't work. It doesn't say uh, that in the Bible. That's a good point. Very good point. The indulgences. The indulgences. That's right. And, of course, Martin Luther came against all of that. And, um, but it was because of all of that that he <clears throat> was granted the time to do the translation work. So God works in interesting ways to, to get his will accomplished. This brings up something that um, I might mention to you. Have any of you visited the Museum of the Bible in D.C. It's been open a little over a year now. And it is a fabulous field trip if you have a chance to go. One of the things that is there um, is a, this is a temporary exhibit, so I don't know how long it's going to be there, but it's an exhibit about something called the Slave Bible. In England, there again in England, there were... um, people who wanted to make sure that slavery continued because they were interested in the sugar crop. And if there were no slaves to work the sugar plantations, then that was going to be money out of their pockets. So they took the Bible and eliminated everything in it that had anything in it about freedom. Hmm. Can you imagine how much they removed they took out the entire book of Psalms. They took out, I think, it, I believe the exhibit said maybe 80% of what we consider our Bible. Anyway, there wasn't a lot left of it after they did that. Most of Galatians went. Uh, anything that talked about our freedom in Christ, our freedom from sin, you can imagine how many verses this is going to be. And so the slaves were taught from this slave Bible that they were doing exactly what the master required and that it was their job to remain subservient, obedient, uh, and that was their, their life's work to be a slave. So it is interesting how it, this, what you said reminded me of this, that there are people that can manipulate the Bible in interesting ways that um, can be very dangerous. Yes, Linda. Didn't Thomas Jefferson do the same thing? Yes. Taking up America. Of course he did. Thomas Jefferson, same thing. Mm-hmm. At least that was his own personal Bible. I don't think he tried to impose it on a lot of people, but exactly. That's what we're doing. Any other thoughts about this? This is 
important information, I think, to think about how the Bible has, in spite of all this, that the Bible has been preserved through the generations. Well, <clears throat> it didn't. It was uh, another hundred years or so passed, and this Wycliffe Bible was becoming very outdated. It was actually had been translated into what we call Middle English. Maybe you all had that when you studied um, in college. But at any rate, it was totally unrecognizable to most people by the 1500s or maybe 1400s. And so Tyndall decided that William Tyndall, who was also an Oxford scholar, decided that it was time for a new translation. So this is William Tyndall, yeah, 1500s. He was a contemporary and friend of Martin Luther. Why? Well, when Tyndall translated the New Testament in secret, he found out that there was a way that it could be printed without it having to be copied by hand. And he smuggled it to Germany and connected with Martin Luther and found, uh, found out that the printing press could be his, his helper. And so this Bible was printed on the Gutenberg press. It was then layered into bales of cloth and returned to England, smuggled into England, and then went throughout the country very much like the uh, Wycliffe translation had several hundred years before. So now we're talking about William Tyndall, who did the same thing. People were really excited about this Bible. It was an English language that they spoke every day. It was an English language they could understand. Tyndall's was actually translated from the original languages, whereas um, Wycliffe's was translated from the Latin. So there was a little bit of a difference in the translation. So people were whispering about it. Do you know about that terrible book that's out there? Where can a person get a copy of it? People were curious, and they wanted to get this Bible for themselves. Sadly, Tyndall was arrested. He was put in prison in Brussels. Um, There he was um, strangled and then burned. His body was burned. But just before he died, he prayed this prayer. Lord, may the king of England hear about this. Please change the heart of the king of England. Well, this was in 1536, and it took until 1604 for the right king to come. And by then, it was James I of England. And he saw the need for an English translation, which could be used in the church service. Apparently that was something different from what Tyndall had translated. But they used a lot of of Tyndall's translation to create what we now know as the King James Bible. 1604 is when that was authorized. It was printed, published in 1611. So it took a while. This is where the work of the committee came in. There were 54 scholars that were appointed to do the work. And they were in three locations, some in Cambridge, some in Oxford, some in um, Westminster in London. 
And then after they did the translation work, they came together. It took about nine months to edit it and get it in final form to be published. And so that is the Bible that for the next four or five hundred years, people used is King James Bible. How many of you had that growing up? King James Bible, yes. And so 1611 is when that was printed. And um, it's still the one that is uh, familiar. It's uh, most poetic, beautifully written. But it's, uh, of course, in an English that more and more is sounding a little archaic to us now. But uh, still one that I, I dearly love. So over the years, you know, we have many, many more translations now. And that brings me to something that I'd like for us to do. Of course, we have the Bibles here that we can use. Next week, we're going to be getting into the Bible. And I'd like to encourage you to bring a favorite Bible from home that you like, something that you are comfortable reading, something that you like the translation. Uh, Maybe you like the way it's printed on the page. I sort of like bigger print than what these have. Um, maybe a little more white space. Maybe you like the ones that have notes at the bottom. But And if you're in the market for a new Bible, there is a table full of Bibles out That's in the right. narthex today. And you can certainly browse a little bit there, or you can go online to see what's available. Um, most of the bookstores have a section of Bibles that you can go and, and check and, and look at. But uh, it is important, I think, to get something that you are are comfortable reading, that you really like the way it looks and the way it reads, and um, that it it works well for you. Over the years, um, there has been the the Revised Standard Version, 1952, the New New International Version with notes, um, the New English, the Jerusalem Bible. Oh, my goodness, there are just so many. In addition to the translations, now there are also paraphrases. Important to be careful with those because they are not literal, not literal translations, but they're very readable. Uh, some of you probably are familiar with the Living Bible. That came out in the 19, I don't even know, 60s, 70s, I think. And that was written or put together by Kenneth Taylor, because he was frustrated that his children couldn't understand the King James around the dinner table. And so on his commute, on the train, going and coming to work, he began to rewrite the Bible into a paraphrase that then became the Living Bible. Also, the message came out in the 1990s, the Eugene Peterson paraphrase. It's very readable and fun. It's, um, It's a very nice translation, I think. So anything about translations, paraphrases, uh, anything from your own experience that you want to share? Okay. Yes. It's interesting that I've memorized the King James. Uh Uh-huh. And those words still come back, not to haunt me, but to... (laughs) (laughs) Come back to haunt you. All of a sudden, I'll I'll think, well, that's not the way I learned. And my my confirmation verse is King James. King James. Mm -hmm. Same with me. You know, that's our generation, and for some reason to me, it's easier to memorize than the modern. I I think just because it sounds more like poetry, maybe, there's a meter to it. It just sort of flows a little bit better, but that's just because it's what I grew up with, probably. Mm -hmm. So this is King James, by the way, and um, so it is interesting to note that it's still being used um, 
Yes, Lynn. I've got the Lutheran Study Bible. Oh, yes, I meant to mention that. In front of each book, you get a um, synopsis from Luther on what he thought about the book. You sure do. Interesting. That's a good point. And then all the way through in the footnotes, um, you get to read the, the notes, but then you also have, and Luther said, <laughs> and he has a line or two about so many things, and it, it's just all right there. I think that's just fascinating. I, I'm doing that now. There's a, um, a way to read the Bible in two years, because I can't do it in one year. I have to read all the notes. So I love the one that's in this Bible where you can read the Bible through in two years. And that gives me plenty of time to read the scripture, read all the notes, and um, take my time. So I'm enjoying that very much. Um, other questions or thoughts from anyone? Okay. Well, I just want to say that <clears throat> the Bible, God's holy word, is imperishable. We have three different verses, um, Jesus speaking, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here's what he says. He says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. And thank thank the Holy Spirit for that. I mean, all through the centuries, all this, this tradition, all these translators, all these paraphrases, it has all come down to us as something that we can enjoy and learn from, that we can trust, because we know that the Holy Spirit has superintended it all from the beginning. Yes, Tony. Oh, I was just going to say, one of my favorite Bibles I can't read. Uh, it's very uh, gets written in Greek. It's a New Testament in Greek, and it was written, or used to be possessed, owned by a young lady that was going to college over a hundred and some years ago. And she has these little notes on the side. And it, 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 what she, she was writing in English, fortunately. Oh, good. But she was studying Greek in, in, in the Bible. How about, where'd you get it? Yeah, I was going to say probably a flea market or yeah. something. It's How about a small one? It's about that big. It's a New Testament only. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about what those uh, ancient languages look like in a bit next week. So. All right, well, it's great to have you. Um, don't forget, oh, there's a question box, and there's some little cards on the table scattered around. If you have a question um, that you think of that you want to just put in there, you certainly can do that. Uh, next week, you're going to be bringing your Bible. And then the third week, two weeks from today, I'd like for you to come prepared with a favorite verse. Now, this can be a verse that you remember from a long time ago that has just been with you all your life and had meaning for you. Or it can be something new that you've just discovered and that is very relevant to what you're going through today, right now. So think about that, and we'll share those uh, at our third class meeting. So any other comments, questions before we pray? The guy said there's a movie came out a few years ago uh, that Denzel Washington was in called The Book of Eli. And it was kind of based on an apocalyptic, you know, futuristic thing. But he's protecting, he's traveling across country, and he's protecting this book he's got. And he's fighting off people and bandits, and they're trying to get it, and it's, you know, it's, it's really, uh, they're trying to get after him. Mm-hmm. Well, and you don't realize what it is until the end of the movie, he was carrying the Bible. And spoiler. That, and, and, and it, well, sorry, spoiler, but he was carrying the, he ended up giving, he ended up getting rid of it and, and, and killing some of these people that were after him, 
and you think the movie's over um, when the when the book is destroyed, but he makes it to like you know it's portrayed in California where they're rebuilding the country and rebuilding the United States and stuff. So it comes to find out he's blind. This Bible has been in Braille, and he starts. He sits down and start reciting the Bible to a translator. Incredible. You know, because he's blind. Yeah. You might be able to see a trailer. It's it's an R movie, but it's uh, wow. something you don't want to watch with your grandkids. But it's it's pretty powerful at the end of it when you get to it. He made all this sacrifice, blind, protecting the Bible. He had to give it up, but he had memorized it all. You know. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've seen today that people literally gave their lives um, for to protect the Bible, what they believed in. So, anything else? Yeah. All right, let's pray, and then uh, we're right on to it. Father, we thank you so much for being with us this morning, that your Holy Spirit has come and been here to guide our thinking. Um, we ask, Father, that you would uh, be with us in the coming week. Keep us safe. Help us to have opportunities to think about your love for us, as Pastor Harmon spoke about so greatly this morning, and um, that we must not forget how much has been sacrificed in our behalf. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.